Okay, folks, it's time for Bible class. And we're already on the air, and in two minutes I'm going to start naming names. Welcome, KFU audience. We were a little rowdy this morning, but we're all here and we want to continue our study of 1 Corinthians. We are in chapter 7, and we are beginning at verse 25. 25. And Paul continues to address different uh, people in different stations of their lives. Um, and so here, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. All right, so... What he's saying is, he's, he's been given no direct word from God on this, but he's going to give you his well-thought-out opinion. He's going to give you a pastoral judgment. Okay? And it's by one who has received the Lord's mercy... The mercy of God has been upon him, and therefore he has been trustworthy. So he's a good source, okay? What he's saying is worth listening to, okay? Notice his first statement. I think that in view of the present distress... Now, what are we to, to make of this present distress? It could be one of several things. One, we know that in Corinth over the years and over probably these years, there was at times real problems with having enough food. There was famine. And uh, there are records of this. So it could be that the present distress is referring to that. Another possibility is simply economic problems. We do know that within the Corinthian congregation, there were both very wealthy people and there were very poor people. This may be part of it. Usually the word, the Greek word that is used for distress here is present reality. That's what's happening in this world. Okay. Others want to think of it as they thought the coming of Christ was going to be imminent. Imminent. 
And so maybe it was better to just stay the way you were because Christ was going to return. In any case, these are some possibilities about the present distress. In other words, remain as you are. Okay? And then he says, if you're bound to a wife, don't seek to be free. And if you are free from a wife, do not seek a wife. Okay? Now this is his counsel. But then he adds, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. So he is just trying to give them a little counsel that it's more difficult if you're married, okay, with all this distress going on, you may want to remain unmarried. But if you do marry, it is not sin. Okay. So he's not giving this as a mandate. You must stay, stay, uh, stay single. That's not what he's saying. Many people read Paul as being anti-marriage. But if you read it carefully, that is not true. Okay? That is not true. And so he makes these statements. And then he adds, just like the present distress, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time is short. Okay? Okay? Is short. So again, this is his emphasis on the second coming of Christ. He thought, they thought it would be eminent. Eminent. Now, that's hard. You know, people don't pay any attention to that anymore. But the fact is, it should always be on our minds as something that is eminent. Because it guides our thinking. It's easy to put um, our Christian faith in a holding pattern if we don't think Jesus is going to come again for in our lifetime. It changes our perspective if we think it's tomorrow. It changes our thinking. It changes our motivation. And so every Christian in every age needs to think in terms of the second coming of Christ being eminent. Being eminent. And that's what he's saying. Now, then he goes into a list here. And at first it sounds really bad, 
But let's read through it. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. So what's he saying here? This is a very appropriate discussion on All Saints Day. Okay? What Paul is saying is not, if you're married, divorce your wife. And if you're mourning, stop you're rejoicing, stop it. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that the present form of things is going to pass away. So don't be dominated by the things of this world. Don't be controlled by the things of this world. Don't make these worldly things your top priority. The real priority is Christ. So again, it's not talking about literal action. It's talking about the way you think. If you think I'm going to be in the world forever, that's one way of thinking. If you think I'm a citizen of heaven and don't even belong here. That's another way of thinking. What Paul is trying to do is to get us to stop focusing totally on the worldly things and the way the world does them. Be focused on the heavenly things and many of the things that we experience in this world will not be a part of the next world. So don't be controlled by the things of this world. You are a citizen of heaven and you don't really belong here. You are a stranger and an alien and a sojourner. That's what the words uh, Paul and God used to describe us in this world. If we become part of this world and are controlled by this world, then we may forfeit being a citizen of heaven. So he's trying to get us to think in a different way because, as he says, the present form of this world is passing away. Okay? Is passing away. And things are going to be different in the age to come. And so, as Pastor Thomas says, when, when you look at yourself, you're both the before and after. You are the before because you are a sinful person. 
but you are also the after because God has worked in you to save you, to bring you to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what you are. That's what really defines you. Not the things of this world. Not the things of this world. Everybody with me? See what I'm saying? Okay. Now, he goes on. I want you to be free from anxieties. All right. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. Okay? Mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. That's the short version of this. But you do, and you know that from your own lives. Uh, yes, you want to please the Lord. Yes, you want to serve the Lord. But your spouse is right there. Okay? There's a immediacy about. There's an importance to you about. All Paul is saying is, if you're in that position, at times you're actually going to be forced to choose between one or the other. Okay? And if not, um, you're very fortunate. But there are tensions in life, there are things in life you have to deal with. And so the unmarried person has one less thing on their plate. That's basically what he's saying. Okay? And he goes on. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Okay? How to please her husband. So the same thing is true. Husbands, wives, wives, husbands. He's simply pointing out that you got both these things in your life if you're a married person. And watch out that you don't become a divided person and lose your focus on the Lord. It's fine to seek to please your wife or your husband, but pleasing the Lord is first, of first importance. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Now, I'm not saying go home and tell your wife, well, I'm not going to do that because I don't think it'll please the Lord. I don't think he wants me to clean the garage out. Well, that's not quite what we're talking about here, okay? 
we're talking about more serious matters. And then he says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. In other words, the law, but to provoke good order, honor and devotion to the Lord. Okay? Just trying to instruct them so that they keep their priorities straight. In life, in no matter what station you are, each person is called upon to keep their priorities straight. And that always includes putting the Lord first. Now this next section is, is difficult. We don't know exactly what he's talking about. We'll try to put it together. Verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, that's engaged, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Now, what, what in the world is he talking about? This is back to what we talked about before with the word distress. We think Paul is talking about betrothed couples may be putting off marriage because of economic problems, because of the famine, or they're just back waiting on the second coming. That's all we can figure out. And, and the first part of it implies that uh, behaving, uh, not behaving properly, not taking proper care of her, um, so it, it's just tough to know the context of exactly what he's saying. One person is, has a lot of self-control and the other one does not seem to. Now why he brings this up, I do not know. Because then he says, if you need to, go ahead and marry, it is not a sin. So why is he bringing this up? We don't know. We don't know. Um, most women don't want to be engaged for 10 years. Okay? That's not considered fair or proper. But the exact context, we don't know. His conclusion is, so then, he who marries his betrothed does well. He commends it. 
And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. I don't know what to make of that. Okay? I have no idea what to make of that. We're moving on. <laughs> Number thir uh, verse 39. This is kind of summary then. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. In other words, it is to be blessed by God. So death frees from the marriage vow. That's what he's saying here. Yet again, he closes. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Okay? Now, in other places in the New Testament, Paul gives counsel over uh, how to treat widows. And in, in, uh, in the two letters to Timothy, he specifies, and to Titus, he specifies that a widow should not be enrolled as a widow unless she's over 60 years old. If a widow is younger than that, she should remarry and have children. So you can try to fit this together with what he's saying here, okay, on your own time. All right. Yeah. That portion about marrying reminds me of what it was like in about 1942 when you had couples that didn't know whether they should get married or not when you were being sent overseas. Okay. That's a good example. That in the Second World War, people did not know whether they should marry or not because the men were going off to war. Yeah. And that was a valid thought process. What what do we do? Yes. Yes, uh, well, that is, that is part of the, the study of the Greek here. Can the first part, if we go back to 36, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, would that be her father? Is her father upset with the way she's being treated? But that doesn't make any sense. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, it's got to be the same person. Okay. Got to be the same person. All right. Now we're going to start a completely different topic. A completely different topic. Because as I reminded you, the Corinthians wrote Paul a letter. And in that letter, they ask about several things of how to handle them. 
And so he begins chapter 8 with a little teaching before he gets into the actual subject of how to deal with it. Now concerning food offered to idols. Okay? We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. All right. What he's saying is everybody has some degree of knowledge. But in what he's about to teach, knowledge could get in the way. Because he's already said that he can do whatever he wants, but not everything he wants to do is beneficial. You remember that? Not beneficial. I can do it, but it may not be beneficial. That's what he's getting at. If you use your knowledge well, it's with love. In other words, you apply what you know with love towards those that are around you. Knowledge is just knowing facts. Wisdom is being able to apply those facts to life. Okay? So what he's saying here is, we all have knowledge, but we need to apply that knowledge with love. Knowledge can puff up because you think you're smart. But love builds up. It builds up now, uh, not only you, but the body of Christ. When knowledge is applied with love, the body of Christ grows. Okay? Now, what he's going to get into actually has ramifications for the next three chapters. Because what he's actually talking about is what we call Christian freedom. Christian freedom. There are certain things that we are free to do, okay? But they may not be beneficial if we do them with other people. Okay? With other people. And I'll give you some examples of those later. So, then he says, If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. In other words, if you think you know something, you don't. That's what he's saying. If you think you're really smart, you're not, okay? 
you still have things to learn because a true a true person with knowledge and wisdom knows in the big scheme of things they don't know much okay they don't know much but if anyone loves god he is known by god you can't love god unless you are known by god how are you known by god he put his name on you at your baptism okay he came to you called you by the gospel enlightened you with his gifts and sanctifies and keeps you in the one true faith he knows you first then you respond in love you respond in love okay now after that short introduction then he starts all right there he starts yes uh no there is nothing it's just the word um knowledge there's nothing that's just the translate somebody's interpreting it for you and since there are no real uh punctuation in greek you can't put things in quotation marks as you please all right all right so here we go concerning food offered to idols first of all he makes a statement we know that there is no false god in the world false uh false idol god in the world and that there is no god but one okay so he affirms that all the gods that people have made up are false gods and there are none in the world that actually exist and then he says for there are so-called gods uh both in heaven and on earth and so there are many gods and many lords false gods and false lords and there are many there are many and back in that day many of them had names and the people in Corinth worshiped them there were many of them but none of them was true none of them was true and so he says but for us there's one god the father from whom are all things and you are for him okay so there's one god he made all things and you were made for him and one lord jesus christ through whom are all things and you through him 
Okay, that goes back to 1 John. All things were made through him and by him. Nothing was made that was made. So through him. All right, so he's affirming there are no other real gods, period. They may have names. They may be listed. But they're not true gods. There's only one. There's only one. And we are for him and through him. But not all have this knowledge. And then he starts in. There are those who uh, are accustomed to previously dealing with false gods. So they eat food offered to idols. And then he says, then the weak, those being weak in conscience, are defiled. Okay? Weak in conscience. So you've got one group, and we'll say they've got this knowledge. There are no other gods. So this food offered to idol stuff is, the, the food's been offered to nothing, therefore we can eat it. Therefore we can eat it. But when other people that feel differently um, see you eating that, they are offended. In fact, it'll go farther than that. What he actually says now is that um, the food, food does not commend you to God. Okay? And then the next part of the verse basically means if you eat you do not eat, you will not get any less. And if you do eat, you won't get any more. In other words, the food that you eat does not determine your place in God's eyes. Okay? Has not determined. Has nothing to do with it. But watch out. How um, you use this authority, lest you become a stumbling block to the weak. All right. In other words, does a person that knows that there is no God but one, and knows that all other gods are false, can that person openly eat food that has been offered to these false gods 
Yes, he can. Yes, he can. But will doing so be an offense to the weak? What is the weak? What are the weak? It's basically a, a description of those who are heavenly, heavily influenced by the behavior of others. Those that are heavily influenced by the behavior of others. Because his point is this. All right, his point is this. The next verse, 10. For if uh, you have this authority, you have this knowledge, um, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? Actually, the word is built up. Built up. If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. So, here's the thing. You got a guy, family, knows there is no God but one, and they freely eat of food offered to idols. In fact, they associate with people that do believe in the idols. Because the reference here is those who recline at table in a temple of a false god. That's the implication. So if your Christian brothers see you doing that, will not they say, well, then I can do it. They go out and do it, and they will feel guilty over it. And then feel guilty over it. Feel bad about it. Feel like I shouldn't have done that. And they have a problem with it. They think they've sinned. It damages their relationship with God. So, that's what Paul is saying. And then he really lays it on them in verse 11. For the weak is destroyed in your wisdom the brother for whom Christ died. In other words, now the weak person believes they've sinned and the cause of it is your behavior and you have now put in jeopardy one of your brothers for whom Christ died. That's called a guilt trip. You are not applying your knowledge with love. Now, food offered to idols is not a problem. Let me finish this. Food offered to idols today is not a problem. But let me, let me paint a scenario 
for you. And you can react or you can just consider it an example. You uh, like to have alcoholic drinks. And you usually serve them in your home. And you um, uh, ask everybody before they come what they like to drink. So you're having a party of your fellow church members. And one of those church members has struggled with alcohol all their life. And you've invited them to come to your house for dinner. Do you serve alcohol that night? Do you flaunt alcohol that night? How do you treat your Christian brother or sister? That would be the same as what Paul is describing here. That would be the same. So that puts it in more real day context. Now, let me also say this. This kind of description is also a problem in some of our mission fields. Because the people's former practices, if the missionaries tried to blend them in with Christianity, they are offended. So uh, the one I read about was uh, in Papua New Guinea, there's a certain kind of drum used to make the music to their false god. When the missionary said, you can use that drum, you'll just be dedicating it to the true god, they said, no, we can't. We can't do that. We can't do that. So, there are applications in our world, uh, both for us, and as I said, for others that are dealing with new people in Christ. Tom. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you have to weigh these things. And so Paul continues. Uh, Paul continues um, in verse 12. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience. Actually, the words are throwing out a snare or throwing out a noose to catch them. When it is weak, he says, you sin against Christ. And then his conclusion. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat forever, it says, lest I make my brother stumble. 
In other words, you can have all the knowledge you want. But if you do not apply that knowledge with the love of your fellow Christians, then you run the risk of causing them to stumble and question their forgiveness and their faith. That's what he's saying. Now, as we continue here in chapters 9 and 10, we're going to see Paul coming back to this point. What is Christian freedom? When is it proper to use the Christian freedom, and when do you need to put it aside? Okay. And Paul will lead us through that in chapters 9 and 10. And then, actually, that discussion leads us into the discussion of the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. Because one of the things that's happening is the wealthy people are coming together to celebrate the Lord's Supper and by the poor people get there, there's nothing left. Okay? They're not taking their fellow brothers and sisters into consideration through love. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Okay, questions? We've got a couple of minutes. Yeah, Steve. Well, it, it would either be consumed by others, uh, but many Christians would not eat. Well, the people that still believed in the idols, okay, they would still partake of it. Yes. But going back to the eminence of history. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Remind? Time is short. The time is short. Um, at the seminary, I was taught, and I always taught the seminarians, when you stand up there on Sunday and preach your sermon, there's going to be somebody out there that's hearing the gospel for their last time, because they're not going to be here next week. They're not going to be here. So you better make sure the gospel comes through loud and clear for that one person that God may call home or next week. And that's the attitude we need to have. Yes. Yes. Yes, her dad was a pastor and a professor. So um, there is an urgency, and we need to keep that in mind. Yes, Dennis? Yeah, 
No, no. The people that believed in idols always ate it. But the Christians, some of them wouldn't, but some of them said, well, idols are nothing. I'm going to eat it anyway. Okay. I'm going to eat it anyway. But they gave bad examples to other Christians. Now, maybe not in all cases, but they were to be alert to the fact. Evidently, it was enough of a problem because the Corinthians wrote to Paul about it and said, what do we do about this? Okay. And Paul put it into context. That's right. And uh, you want to make sure they hear the gospel loud and clear every single week. Okay? Every single week. All right. It's time. Yeah, Mark? Why were... Yeah. I don't know if we can make that fit here. Okay? I don't know that we can make that fit here. I'll have to think about that one. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.